Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show, and we talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? Haddock Sport Performance provides a complete strength and conditioning experience. With over five years of experience at the elite international level and a global group of athletes, they have come to appreciate that training is a partnership. And with HSP, their goal is to provide each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly with you to get to know you as a person and athlete, and together build a plan for you to be your best in competition. If you are invested in your own success and performance, they are here to support you. To know more about their methods and philosophy, head to haddocksportperformance.ca or get a look at their day-to-day by checking out HSP on Instagram. Now with all that done, let's go! Welcome to episode 19 of the podcast. Today's guest is Helen Stumbos. Helen was a member of Canada's national soccer team for eight years and was a member of Canada's first ever World Cup team in 1995. She scored Canada's first World Cup goal at the 1995 Women's World Cup. Her career led to her position in the prestigious Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame in 2008. Helen is also a Wilfrid Laurier University Hall of Fame athlete. While attending Laurier, Helen was honored as a four-time All-Canadian All-Star and was presented with the President's Award for Outstanding Female Athlete of the Year a record three times. While there, her team won three provincial titles and one national title. Following her soccer career, Helen continued on as a commentator for women's soccer on Rogers Sportsnet and CBC and was involved in working on four World Cup broadcasts. Helen is an ambassador for Habitat for Humanity, a coach to young girls, a role model to young athletes and professionals, and is one of the founders and CEO for the Canadian Soccer Alumni and Players Association. Here is my interview with Helen Stumbos. I'm here with Helen Stumbos. I'm really excited for this conversation today. She wears a lot of different hats, so I'm really excited to hear a little bit about her story. So Helen, how are you doing today? I'm good, Theo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm pretty excited here. So we're going to get right into segment number one, your journey. So we're going to talk first about your experience on the national team in soccer. Can you talk about how you got to the national team and kind of what steps uh, you took to get there? It was probably a little bit different then. I, I'm from a small town. I born and raised and grew up in Guelph, but I had a pretty good youth career. Was always kind of, I guess, a little bit on the radar from a provincial perspective, played provincially, played regionally. Um, but didn't really make the national team. There was a lot of, I think the national team started, it must have been in the 90s. I, I remember going to the first national team camp and and I was very young. I think I was a te- like a young teenager. It was the first time they had a national team camp. Actually, it would have been the 80s, sorry, the 80s. And, uh, and I remember being there with a lot of amazing soccer players. I remember Carrie Swetnick, who I ended up playing with uh, many years down the road, but uh, I was very intimidated and I think I was sick the whole weekend because I was just so nervous, but my my first kind of taste of playing on the national team was when I was in university, I got asked to go to a camp, a national kind of a university camp for all the top players in, in Canada and universities in Canada. 
Uh, and then from that, we got selected to go to an actual national team camp. And I think there was only two of us that made it from the university camp to the national team nice. camp. Myself and Lynn Forsyth. Lynn from the University of Guelph, actually. And the two of us went on to both play for Canada. So that was in, uh, must have been around 92, 93. And then my first competition was in 93, the World University Games. And pretty cool experience. But it was, a, it was definitely, you know, the speed of play. I remember being ridiculously fast. And in my first tournament with Canada, I was playing in a tournament in the States. And I remember my first game was against Italy. And I think my second game was against the Americans who were the top team in the world and still are. And I just remember being so freaking exhausted. Like I literally remember being on the field and um, thinking there's no way this is possible. There's no way you can play an entire game this, this, at this speed. And uh, I had to literally train my brain to be able to compete at that uh, capacity for that long. So I had to play games with myself where I started to play five minute intervals. So I'd look at the clock and I'd say, okay, you only need to focus for five minutes and that's all you're playing. And that was the only way I could get myself to go through an entire 90 minutes. Cause I, at the time, I just didn't think I could, could last 90 minutes cause it was so hard and so fast. And, and like slowly, you, you know, you train your brain to, to be able to do it. And then, you know, I could play 90 minutes and then I could play 90 minutes plus extra time. But at the beginning, it was just, it was such a, a giant step from what I was used to in, in terms of speed speed of play, uh, amount of running. I just couldn't believe how much running we were doing. <laughs> and funny enough, I'm not a big fan of running. So I don't know. I'm a yeah. soccer player and I played midfield. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. But but that was kind of my first uh, foray into the, into the national team. And then, you know, continued on that path. And I mean, there's a lot of stories I can tell you along that path. It just depends on what, <laughs> what, what, what uh, you want me to focus on in that. No, for sure. Actually, yeah, if we could talk a little bit about how your university career at Laurier uh, led you to, to kind of get, you obviously said you had a good uh, youth career, but then you went to Laurier. And how did that experience um, help or, or guide you to the national team, if at all? Well, uh, you know, what was good about Laurier was we had a great team. We really did. Uh, one thing our coach did was he recruited very well. And we had an amazing team and we were always contenders for a national title the entire time we were there. I think we won three provincial titles. We won a national title in 92, but it wasn't my Laurier coach that got me to the national team. It was Keith Mason from the University of Guelph. Keith was my coach growing up here in Guelph. And he was the one that found out that, well, he knew he was going to this, this camp for all the athletes. So what was happening was all the soccer players across Canada that went to universities they were selecting the top players from each university or from each area to go represent that area at a national camp for universities. Keith was going as a coach and my coach didn't put my name forward. Oh, boo. <laughs> I know. I hear you. Uh, but Keith contacted me and Keith contacted at the time the CIAU and said that I had to be there. And, uh, he, and he tells a really funny story. So I went to this, I ended up going to this camp and he was there and uh, I wasn't really that well-known, I would say at the national level. So we ended up going to this, this camp. It was in Sherbrooke, Quebec. I remember it tells a funny story. I, and I don't, I didn't know this, but I guess when we were there, we were playing this three V three competition. And so Keith was sitting there with all the coaches. There were a bunch of coaches there that were there uh, observing this camp as well. 
And I guess he said to all the coaches that my team was going to win this three to three competition. And they didn't really know who I was. So they were like, nah. So anyway, I guess I, my team went on a one to three v three competition. Uh, but that was kind of my, my first camp. It was just a university camp. And the next year they did the same thing. And Lynn Forsyth uh, from the University of Guelph, actually, and I were the only two players that made it through to the actual national team camp from there. So, so my Laurier career was great in the sense that, I mean, anybody that plays university sport knows just that part of, to me, if you ask me what I remember about my Laurier days is my soccer career. That's what I remember. I remember being there with all my, my friends, my teammates, and they're still a lot of the girls on that team were still very connected. We still see each other. And so it almost becomes your family when you're there because you're, you're actually spending so much time with all of the players on your team. We spent, you know, every single day training twice a day sometimes, and then all the weekend together playing in games and whatnot. So Lori was just absolutely amazing. Nice. And a shout out to, to the people that made it happen there for you to get onto the national team. So in terms of being on the national team itself, is there a, a different selection process to get onto the World Cup team? Are you training with a larger group of women and then it gets narrowed down? How does that work? Well, every year there would be camp, selection camp. So you're never you're never secured on the national team. You all okay. are, you know, it's based on your last performance. So there was never like, hey, I'm on the team and and now I'm good. So, you know, you make it on that team. And then the next year, it's the same thing all over again. You have a selection camp. They pick, you know, maybe 40, 50 players. And then from there, they dwindle it down to who will make it on that team. Every year, it could be totally different. <clears throat> and actually, in the year of the World Cup, and, and anybody that wants to watch my TEDx uh, talk, I talked about this a little bit more on there. But the year of the World Cup, I actually was cut from the team on, in 95, right before the World Cup. In that selection camp, I was cut. It was in Hamilton. And I ended up making it back on the team because a player got injured. But the story kind of behind that is uh, I, I, I actually really struggled with my confidence when I was on the national team. I had a really hard time and I, I, I would always think that I, I wasn't good enough to be there. And um, which was very strange because I had a lot of success um, as an athlete at Laurier. I was an All-Canadian, you know, pretty much every year. It was, uh, I had a great career there. I had a great career here in Guelph. But something, I don't know what happened when I made it on the national team, but something snapped in my head and I just, I became very insecure and I would have anxiety attacks and I wasn't sleeping at night because I just kept worrying about my performance, which was weird because, I mean, I literally made it on the starting lineup from the minute I made it on the team. That's awesome. <laughs> but I, I don't know what happened. I used to sit at practices. I, I remember so clearly look, sitting at practices and watching other players and and wondering if I was the only one that struggled with this and thinking that there was something wrong with me. So, so in 95, when I got cut, I remember thinking, oh, you know what, maybe I wasn't good enough to be here. But then when I made it back on the team, I, I ended up reading a book called As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. My sister had given it to me. And the book basically talked about the power of your mind and the power of your thoughts. And I remember reading the book in France. Uh, I was on a bus. And I remember reading this and thinking, holy moly, like, you mean the thoughts in my head can be changed. I can actually change them and they're, they're up to me to change. And I made a like decision right there on the bus that I was like, there's no way my thoughts are going to control my performance on the field. So I ended up going into that tournament in France and probably playing the best tournament I'd ever played on the national team. And the coach came up to me afterwards and was like, you, you know, best thing I ever did was cut you. <laughs> she thought I became a better player, but she didn't realize that I, you know, something had kind of switched in me. And I, I went on to 
have a really great tournament at the World Cup. It was it was just such a weird. It was the the switch in what happened is interesting, and I always wonder why we don't teach people and kids and athletes, you know, the power of mind and the power of thinking. Because if you ask me, the biggest difference in a player's performance is how. I mean, at that level, everybody's good and everybody's fit and everybody's skillful. Big separation is how mentally you can you can be successful. And the only difference with me at that time, it wasn't that I got more fit or I got more uh, skillful or became a better player. I just made a decision that my mind, I was going to start controlling my mind and the thoughts I had in there. It literally went from me not sleeping at night and having anxiety attacks to like sleeping like a baby and, and having no anxiety at all before games and going on the field and just feeling, you know, a calm confidence when I went on the field and, you know, playing in the world cup. And, and it was weird because in the world cup, I, I had coaches that were following me from game to game, trying to recruit me to play in their, for their teams. Uh, one, one team, one team in Germany was uh, following me, wanting me to go to Germany to play and it was so strange because it wasn't what I was used to it was usually, you know, all the other players that coaches were looking at. So mm. it was interesting just to see that drastic change. And, and I think that's such a great example for people to see just the power of mind. And I don't know if people realize how significant and important being able to control our thinking and, and being aware of what we put into our mind, it changes our physical being. So that was a big lesson for me. And, and it's, uh, you know, I now, if you come to my house and you look at my bookshelf, every single book I read is on the power of mind and it hasn't stopped. So it was a great lesson for me. And, you know, I think it's helped me in my life. I think you never stop learning. I think you can, you, you know, I read all these books and they, they all are very similar in the message, but I think it's just about infusing that message in your, your brain and, and continually repetitively putting it in there. So, you know, you, you remember and you don't forget. So that was probably one of the biggest lessons of my life and and uh, that's how my national team career I define as pre-reading that book and after reading that book because it was so such such a definitive moment for me yeah Helen thank you for sharing that and the TEDx talk that she's uh, referring to is available on YouTube so I'll leave that information in the show description as well so if you want to check that out you can definitely do so and so Helen just uh, a question related to this now What's some advice you would give to a fellow elite athlete or just any athlete in general who maybe struggles with uh, confidence or or some of the the mental things that you talked about with performance? What's the first step you would uh, say that they should take to uh, try to better themselves in that way? I think the first thing is to realize that you're not alone and it's not an isolated case. I think the worst worst feeling you have, and at least for me personally, was just feeling like it was just me feeling that. Like, and I think it's so important to share that message because I think a lot of times people see your successes and think you have all this confidence and that, you know, an athlete that makes it on the national team is, you know, full of, you know, confidence and, and, and it's so opposite. And, and I talk to a lot of athletes now in, in what I do. And the one thing I, I'll say is consistent is that, you know, we, we, every athlete struggles with confidence, almost every athlete, not going to say everyone, but a lot of athletes struggle with this. And, and for me personally, I would say one, because we have so much access to the internet, there's so much information on the internet you can actually source with working on, you know, your confidence. And once you become aware that it's actually something you can control, which I never knew, I mean, I, 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 you know, you always just think, well, they're just my thoughts, but no, you can control your thoughts. You can work on that and, you know, pick up some books that really resonate with you or listen to some audio tapes just depends on 
you know, what way your brain kind of works in that a lot of people like to read, a lot of people like to listen to stuff, a lot of people like to watch videos. So finding that source of inspiration for you and just continually really infusing your brain with those messages. And, and once you start to understand them, you can start to work on yourself with implementing strategies. There's so many good books out there on the power of mind that, and there's so many good talks out there. Um, and I think that once you start to see all of that and to understand that one, you're not alone Two, there's strategies out there to work on this and there's lots of information. So, I mean, you know, the internet's your biggest friend, if you want it to be, there's so much info out there. And, you know, sometimes it, you don't know what resonates with different people. You, you really have, you do your own research, do your own studying to see what, what resonates and what works. It's so hard to say, Hey, I read a lot of spiritual books. So for me, spirituality is how, what helps me, but a lot of people might not like that. Some people might like, you know, um, Christianity and religious books. Some people might just like, you know, scientific mind books, which there are, but there's so many great authors out there. And so, so many ways to kind of get that message into, to understand that, you know, we create our reality and it's what we put into our minds that creates our reality. And we can change that any day we wish. There's a great poem by Jim Rohn called any day you wish. And I, you know, that's another thing you can put on underneath. Theo is, uh, it's, it's called any day you wish. And it basically says any day you wish you can make that decision to change it's that easy, but it's up to you to make that decision. And I think the power in making that decision is where the power, the power is what we have to make that decision. Thank you for uh, sharing that. And you can definitely see Helen's uh, mentorship here as she's uh, trying to motivate the listeners, which is really awesome. Another question I have is, you shouted out Keith Mason as someone that was really important to your soccer team journey and on the national team. Is there anybody else that you want to give a quick shout out to that was really influential in impacting you on your soccer journey? You know what? I would just say my dad. It all really started with my dad. And uh, we used to just, when I was really young, we just used to sit in the backyard and I just was a kid kicking the ball around. And my neighbor came up to us and showed us an article in the newspaper uh, saying, hey, did you know you can jo join a house league team if you want to, you know, do something? And, you know, my parents were immigrants. We didn't really know anything about, you know, organized leagues. So that was kind of the first thing we'd ever heard of joining something. We had no idea. So my dad, uh, you know, signed me up to a house league team here in Guelph. And it's funny enough, that first house league team I was on, I, I totally remember this. I think it was about nine or 10. The, that league, they had too many players. So every team was getting rid of two or three players to make one more team because there are too many players on each team. So basically what every coach did was get rid of the worst players on the team. So that extra team was made up, <laughs> made up of all the worst players. And that was me. Like a max exodus. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it was me. I was the one of the worst players on the team. And it's funny because the coach that got rid of me ended up being the dad of a player I played with on the, on the all-star team down the road. So it was, I oh, remembered yeah. him and I was like, you got rid of me my first year. But so I ended up playing on the worst team my first year, but you know, there was, you know, I would say to people, it's so interesting because you really do know when I was a kid, I tried a lot of different things, but I, as soon as I picked up a soccer ball and as soon as I kicked a soccer ball and as soon as I was on the field playing with the team, you know, you hear from a lot of, I was in love. Like I was just in love. I could not get enough of it. And I think we can all, you, you probably feel this way too, Theo with uh, ultimate Frisbee. Yeah. You know, there's just something, you know, when you love something and you know, when you don't love something, you know, I played piano and I hated it. And I did all these other things. I hated it. But as soon as I picked up a soccer ball, I, it was just literally, I was in love. 
And I remember my dad would take me out every single day and we would go to Centennial and everybody knew us there because we would show up at Centennial Field. My dad had a big brown Chevrolet and the big brown Chevrolet would show up at the field every single day. I mean, every day. <laughs> and we would watch a soccer game, the end of a soccer game at the in the bowl. And then after that, my dad would take me to the field next to it. And we didn't have pylons or anything like that, but he would just pick up garbage and he would make pylons out of garbage. And he would make me dribble, you know, the ball with my left foot, with my right foot, with the inside, with the outside. And uh, we did that every single day. And everybody got to know my dad and I, because we literally showed up at the field every single day. And I would, I would wait at the top of the stairs for my dad at the house and wait till he finished dinner. And I'd literally be waiting there for him to take me out so we could train. And that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to play soccer. That's all I wanted to do. I just could not get enough. And, you know, I think for any kids out there, any parents out there, I would say, just let your kids try as many sports as possible. You know, when you fall in love with your sport or with a musical instrument or with a paintbrush, just depends on what your, you know, medium is. But you know, when you fall in love with something, there's nothing that can stop you. Like you just love it. So I think I'm grateful to my next door neighbor for, you know, showing me the newspaper article. I would never have known to join a league. You know, soccer was just, my dad was my coach growing up. And so he was a big part of, you know, me growing up. And at the time it was, uh, he was really, really tough on me. And there was a definitely times where it frustrated me. And I think as years went on and as I got older, you know, you get wiser when you get older. I remember thinking that's, I was angry at him so many times. I was like, can he tell me I did good? Like he always wanted me, he would always pick out things I could do better. That was how my dad coached me. But I do realize that he just, he, he knew my potential and he wanted me to reach my potential. He's the reason I became the player I was because he taught me basics. He taught me you know, basic skills that I think, you know, I'm very lucky that he knew that the sport so well that he could teach me those things. And then with Keith, I think we were lucky in that our team had Keith growing up many years, but Keith also was so great at teaching us basic skills. You know, we had, i lucky, lucky enough to have my dad and Keith where you know, a lot of times when you're growing up, it's just a lot of volunteers that end up coaching and a lot of volunteers don't really know the sport very well. But lucky enough, both Keith and my dad knew the sport very well and taught us basics. You know, I think as kids, we always want to kick a ball and do the fun stuff and just shoot. Play games. <laughs> Scrimmage. Yeah, exactly. We just want to have fun, right? But they definitely made sure we learned the basics and, and the skills. Even with Keith and the team we played on for many, many years, we played on, I played on the same team with almost all the same girls growing up. You know, for a small city with a small group of soccer players, I, I credit Keith and, you know, what he taught us growing up. We were contenders all the time to be one of the top teams in, in the province. And I think it was just because we were a great team. We were taught well. We were coached well. And we felt like family. You know, they've changed the system a lot now in that I think the top players now go to play in OPDL or something like that. You don't actually play for your club anymore. You go and you play OPDL. And I just think that, you know, they've changed the system so much. I don't know a lot about it, but all I, all I know is if if you're having fun and you're enjoying where you're at, I would stick with that because that's the most important thing. Last question here of this first segment. What's some advice you would give to someone kind of in your boat who wants to potentially uh, play on the national team or reach that next level? What's sort of some tips you would give them? 
there's definitely discipline you need because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not always, did I love training? Did I love running? Did I love, you know, getting out in minus 30 degree weather and having to do my training? I didn't love it all the time, but I loved playing the sport so much that I knew that's what I needed to do to be able to, to compete at that level. I remember somebody telling me once that the only person you cheat is yourself when you're cheating and training. That's what teachers say. <laughs> and it's so true because, you know, there's nothing worse than getting on a field, especially I remember this on the national team. When you get on a field and you can't compete, you're tired and you're exhausted because you, you're not fit enough. So I always remember that. And I remember them saying, you know, when you cheat and you, you cheat corners or you don't do the full training, you're only cheating yourself because at the end of the day, the only person that suffers is you. So I always knew that for me to compete and to be able to compete at the level I wanted and not to feel like I was letting myself down and letting my team down, that I had to train at my highest capacity. So it's not always fun. But when you want to play at that level, and that's where your heart is, because I, when you love the sport that much, and you know, you want to compete at that level, you just go through what you have to go through, and you do what you have to do. Um, you don't even think about it. You know, it, it, it's like I had a training program, I knew I had to do it. And I, you would never even now, like I, I have a training program now. And I literally know I have to do my, my workouts every day. And I still stick with it. So I don't know if it's just something in you that you, you know, you want to do and you want to continue with. And when I was a soccer player, I just, I never wanted to be a player on the field that was sucking wind. So I always knew that I had to train hard. And I even remember when I would train at the national training center, we, we trained at the national training center here in Toronto and I would go to practices and, and I would train really hard. Like I would be one of those players that would go into, you know, scrimmages and I would play hard. And I would go hard because I knew that whatever I did there is what I would show on the field. And there were times where other players were pissed off at me and they would be like, that you're going too hard. Yeah. That I like, why are you training? So why are you going so hard? And I was like, well, because this is what I'm going to do in a game. And if I don't do it in a practice, I don't do it in a game. I won't be ready for a game. And I always kind of approached, it wasn't like I did it. You know, I wouldn't say I was like this crazy player that was trying to hurt people or do anything, but I definitely wanted to put my all into training. I remember being in a a tournament with the United States and we were watching them train one day and they were, they were doing a like small sided scrimmage. And I remember watching them and, and I will say the one thing I saw was, man, they went hard. They didn't care that they were on the same team. They were going at it and they were going hard because they knew when they got on the field to play against another country and another team, that's how they had to play. I remember watching that and thinking, you know, it's funny because at the time, our strategy for training was a lot of running, just running. And I hated it because I always thought, why are we just running when we should be playing? And I remember watching the U.S. team train. And I don't know if it's different now. It probably is. But I remember watching the U.S. team train and they didn't just go out on the field and just keep running without a soccer ball. They played small sided games. They played games where they tra- they played so hard and they were completely spent at the end of it. And to me, that's the best way to train because you're training for what you're doing. I mean, there doesn't make a lot of sense to get on a track and run around a track and seeing how many you know times you can go around a track in a certain amount of time when you should actually just, you should have a soccer ball. Like if you ask me, when you're training for soccer or if you're training for uh, ultimate Frisbee, you know, sure you have to have that capacity to run. If there's ways you can include 
the ball or the frisbee in your training and continue the capacity to, to in- increase your endurance. I just think that's the best way to train because you're training for your sport, which makes a lot more sense, right? It does. And so uh, if you're a coach listening, uh, that's uh, that's some advice from a former World Cup soccer player there. And uh, we're going to move to segment number two, day-to-day life. So I'm really interested for this as well. Tell the audience, what is your daily life or what did your daily life look like as a national team soccer player? Are you doing other things on the side? Like, what does that look like? So when I played, um, it's a little bit different than it is now because we really didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> I was a I was a carded athlete at the time. I think I was one of the highest cards, but I think I was making a few hundred dollars a month. Oh, wow. um, that's it. And, and that didn't even cover. I was training. I think I was training four times a week, twice in, in Oakville and then twice in Hamilton or Toronto, depending on the time of the year. It wasn't a lot of fun back then. <laughs> it was hard because when we were training in the winter, I was training at Iverwind Stadium at the time in, on the weekends, at least, and training in Oakville on the weekdays. But in Iverwind, it would, I remember driving to Iverwind Stadium and it would be minus 30 degrees, minus 40 degrees with the wind chill. And hearing the radio say, people don't go outside, it's not, you're not supposed to go outside because it was not healthy for you to breathe in it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm like literally going to train outdoors in minus 30 to 40. I'm not kidding oh, you. Oh, wow. We, not, not in the bubble. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We trained out on the old Iverwind t- turf, which was basically a thin piece of turf on cement. Yeah. And yeah. there were so many times we showed up at Iverwind and we'd have to get the shovels out and shovel the snow off of the, off of the turf. Cause there was snow on the turf. There were times where it was too icy. And so we would train under the bleachers, which was cement and we were wearing cleats. I mean, the things we did to train was completely different than, than what it is now. So it was a lot of, you know, out, outdoor the whole time we, we trained outdoor in minus 30, minus 40 weather. It was, uh, it was definitely, more challenging and even when they opened up the national training center in Vaughn we weren't allowed to use it so national training center but the national team members weren't allowed to use it go figure uh so we were still training at Iverwind Stadium and outdoor in the snow during this time and then uh yeah it was just different I mean I had to work full-time I worked at a, a Greek restaurant as a waitress I had to find jobs that let me leave for certain periods of time when I was in university I was very lucky I I worked for um, a company called WC Woods, which was a factory. And I worked there because I, I had to pay for my university career um, or my university. And the owner there, Mr. Wood, who I remember very fondly and unfortunately he's passed away, but he was so good to me. He let me take time. So usually in the summertime, they hire students to work shift work. And usually it's night work, but he knew I was you know, training on the national team. So he let me work days, which was very rare. And then he also let me take weeks off at a time when I had to go to National Training Center and train uh, in camps. And that allowed me the opportunity to play on the national team. If I didn't have, you know, bosses that let me leave uh, and take time off, I wouldn't have been able to because, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to pay for my university career. Um, And then I worked uh, later on, I worked at a a restaurant and that same thing there. I was allowed to, you know, kind of take time off to go train on the team and go away for two to three weeks at a time. So, you know, a lot of it depended on, you know, our, our bosses, I guess at the time, letting us take those, those days off and having flexible hours, which some people had the privilege of and other people didn't. And luckily I had, you know, great 
opportunities where they let me work so I could pay for my, you know, living. <laughs> Everybody knew around here. I mean, you would see me all the time. I was always out running, out training. I remember, you know, I remember one training program I had where we had to do, I think we had to do 35, 200 meter sprints and it was winter. And so I remember going out of my parents' house and going on their street and measuring out 200 meters and, and doing 30, like 35, 200 meter sprints. And people were shoveling, it was winter and people were shoveling the snow. And I think they probably thought I was nuts. I mean, I knew I had to do the work and I would never not do it. I just would do it. I knew I had to do it. So I did it. And you just, you know, you did what you had to do and it was a different time for sure. I mean, we never got together as much as they do now. I think now the team stays together uh, quite consistently, whereas we would get together for a week or two, you know, prior to a tournament, uh, which made it really challenging because a lot of when you play with a team, it's uh, it's that cohesiveness of knowing what your players are going to do and how to work with each other. But we would get together for, you know, a week or two before a, a tournament and then we would get together, we'd pick the team and then we would go go play in a tournament. So and it was a, just a different time, you know. Uh, you know, if you want me to get into the dark and dirty of it, our coach, our coach at the time was not very kind and very nice. And it was a very abusive situation for a lot of the players. It was really negative. Uh, it was, uh, it was so bad that 20 years later we had a reunion and we couldn't even speak our coach's name. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it was that not positive, but luckily we had such great teammates and players that we became a great, strong family as a team because we knew we had to stick together, but but uh, yeah, it was a, it definitely, it was a really challenging time, but I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, you, when you go through those challenging times, it just shows you who you are and it strengthens you as a, as a person. Cause you know, you can kind of get through anything. So it was a, uh, it was definitely different and hard and mentally challenging, emotionally challenging, physically exhausting. I mean, there were sometimes we were training two to three times a day, every day for like a week's on end. Uh, so it was, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of work, but you know, there was nothing that could be putting on that national team Jersey and, and playing for your country. There's just nothing, there was nothing that could beat that. You would do anything. That's how much we loved playing our sport. We just wanted to play our sport, represent our country. And it didn't matter what we had to do to, to get through the crappy times. We did it because we just all wanted to play, play for our, our country. Yeah, the mental fortitude that you've talked about earlier kind of in segment one is definitely at play here. Uh, I can't imagine training in the icy uh, fields of Iverwind there. So that's a pretty crazy story. And that actually leads well to this next question I have. So you talked about donning the Canadian jersey and how proud you were of that moment. So can you just give the listeners maybe a couple minutes snapshot of what that World Cup experience was like? And especially the milestone you were able to achieve uh, for yourself personally at that tournament. You know, anytime you can go to a World Cup, it's pretty incredible. We were lucky enough to be, so there's, there. I think there are a few different uh, locations for the World Cup, like there is every time, you know, you have to go from one location to the next, they can't host all the teams. So we were in the uh, the host cities location for the first game. Uh, Sweden was playing Brazil as the opening game, and then we were playing England as the second game. So we were there for, so opening ceremonies were actually in our city. And um, so, you know, we were lucky enough to be there. And then after the opening ceremonies, uh, Sweden was playing Brazil. But, you know, it was just a different time. Uh, part of, I think, playing in any sort of competition like that is getting to experience the whole gamut of it. 
which is being able to go to the opening ceremonies, being able to watch the other games. And for some reason, you know, our coaches just didn't want us to have that experience. Uh, so we weren't, we were, we weren't allowed to do anything. We kind of ended up convincing our coaches that we wanted to go to the opening ceremonies and we, some of the players didn't want to, which was fine, but some of us went, uh, but we weren't allowed to, for some reason, they didn't want to stay to watch the game. So, you know, there was just so much at the time that was, you know, it was unfortunate. And there was a lot of things leading up to that tournament that I think really took away some of our, our focus and attention. When we were going into the tournament, normally when you go into a World Cup, you know, you have to have uh, certain specifics with regards to jerseys and uh, size of sponsors, logos. And, and so we were, I think we were given track suits and the track suits we were given were extra, extra, extra large. So they didn't fit any of us. They were men, extra, extra, extra large. You're swimming in them. <laughs> yeah. So we had to fly home. Some of us veterans flew home, got our old track suits to give the, the rookies because we couldn't fit into these track suits. But because the sponsor's name was too big, we ended up having to wear uh, tape on our clothes. So we walked around the World Cup with uh, masking tape on our, on our clothes. And, uh, and then when we got our jerseys, uh, the jerseys didn't have our names on it. And to play in the World Cup, you have to have your names on it. So our coaches had to stay up all night to put our names on our jerseys because we didn't have our names on our jerseys. So it was, a, it was an interesting time. Even our socks, we got our socks, had the name of their sponsor on it. We had to put tape on our socks because the sponsor's name was too big. So there were just so many little things like that that are just so silly that you really shouldn't have to think about when you're going to play in a World Cup. But we, you know, here we are in a World Cup putting tape all over everything and walking around the World Cup with tape on everything. So, I mean, they're good stories to talk about. But so, yeah, so I think there was some distractions happening there. Going into that first game with England, we played actually not too bad. And then I think they they kind of had some... They, I think they got two two penalty shots in a row, which weren't penalty shots. So it was just there was a lot of things that happened. But you know, it was looking back on it. If I was to say what I what would I wish I had done, and what I would say to people now is stop and smell the roses. Like really appreciate that you're there, and that look around and experience it because you you never get to play in those things. Uh, are very lucky to play in something like that, and so you know sitting down, smelling the roses. I did go to opening ceremonies, which I was very grateful I did. I wish I could have stayed and watched the game. I really wanted to watch the game. We had to go back to our hotels. We were kicked, you know, our coaches kicked us out of the game and made us go back to our, our hotel and uh, watch the game on TV there, but we couldn't watch it live. So there were some interesting experiences there. I think as a coach, you should really let your team, you know, as a player, what you, what, what motivates you and what doesn't, you know, uh, there were players on our team for sure that were like, no, I don't want to see anything. I just want to be in my bubble and be ready, get ready for the game tomorrow. Or is there some of us that were like, no, like this is part of the experience and I want to be there. And that motivates me. And for me, that was what motivated me. I loved get the hype. Like for me, the more hype, the better, the more uh, excitement I saw, the better I felt, you know, the bigger, the crowd, the louder, louder, the crowd, the better I perform. So I just, I got, I got excited about that. And that made me, that made me perform better. Uh, Other players like the solitude of just listening to their music and sitting in their room and doing meditations or whatever it was that they did. But as players at that level, I think you, you really know yourself, you know, your body, you know, what motivates you. And I think, uh, you know, when you're in your twenties and you've already been living on your own for so many years and you've already been training, I think, you know, what works and what doesn't. Um, And I think that maybe that's something that's changed on 
you know, teams now is I think they're that we all know ourselves, like little things like even, you know, for me, waking up and having a full breakfast wasn't what I really, that made me a better player. For me, it was, you know, maybe having a banana in the morning and like staying in my room and relaxing was what I performed better as. So I think you, you know, you just realize everybody's in, everybody's unique, everybody's independent and everybody should know at that point, what makes them a better player. I mean, at that point, you're so in tune with your body, you're in tune with what works for you. So at the world cup, I think that if our coaches had let us know, like make that decision to know, you know, if you guys want to experience this and you know, you'll be fine with it, like, you know, your, your body better than you, than I do. So that, that would have been a nice experience to have, but playing in the game, you know, so yeah, I ended up scoring a goal. (laughs) Apparently it was a pivotal goal. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a big goal in Canadian history though, right? It is. It's funny. It was, so I, you know, I didn't think twice about it. Uh, interesting enough that the day before the day before we were training and I was taking I took all the free kicks and, and corner kicks um, etc and my roommate at the time I was talking to her and I said you know I I can score off of corner kicks like I do it all the time that's I learned how to score off of corner kicks from a young age my dad taught me and so I kind of told her I could do that so anyway in the game uh, it was the second half and whether conscious or unconscious but I knew we needed to score and and I Literally, people say it was a fluke, but I'm going to say it wasn't a fluke because I've done it before. <laughs> but yeah, I ended up scoring that goal, but I honestly had no idea of any sort of importance of the goal. For me, I didn't care because it was we were losing two to one at that point. All I cared was let's get the game going so we can try to score again. I don't even think I knew it was the first goal for Canada for probably six months or so. Somebody asked me if, asked me six months down the road, oh, you know, do you know who scored the first goal for Canada in a World Cup male or female? And I was like, no, who? <laughs> who was it? <laughs> and they're like, you? I'm like, oh, I had no idea. So it was funny because I, I actually had no idea. But I'm like, you know what? If there was a goal I was going to score on a national team, that's probably the best one I could score. And then so how did the rest of the World Cup experience um, land for you sort of after that? goal and sort of some of the things you just talked about some of the negative things how did the experience overall end up how did you guys how did the team do etc I think we were in a group where we should have so that was the first time where qualifications for the Olympics were through the the position you had in the World Cup so um, the Olympics the next summer we we had to become in a certain place and I think we came in one spot after it so it wasn't it wasn't what we wanted it wasn't what we expected we should have really made it through we played Norway was in our our division and Norway went on to win the world cup and Norway was just phenomenal I mean they were they were just so good but the disappointing thing was we didn't make it into the Olympic games I just remember after that world cup I needed to take some time I remember taking time off I was completely spent mentally emotionally physically I remember that there was a team in Germany that wanted me to go play there and I just remember thinking I needed to take a few months off. So after the world cup, I literally just, I needed time off. It's amazing how, how draining it is draining physically, draining emotionally, spiritually. I was just, I was, I remember just being completely spent and it was so different that it's funny. Cause I remember coming home from the world cup and this is how different the game is now. I mean, we came home from the world cup and our goal, our, our games hadn't even been broadcast yet. <laughs> Really? So no one knew the results. <laughs> I mean, I think I came home and I watched the games on TV. So 
I mean, it's just funny how, how different things are now and how much more attention women's soccer gets, which I'm very happy to see. But, you know, those are the beginning days. You know, there's always going to be the struggles that go along with, you know, growing a sport. And, and uh, you know, those were definitely challenging times. Not to say there's not challenging times now. Every time, I mean, you're constantly growing, right? If you're not growing, you're dead. So <laughs> I just think that there was a lot of growth and, and shifting happening there. And you were just starting to see what women's soccer was going to be and, and where it's come to now. You can see how amazing the sport is and, and uh, how much it's changed, especially here in Canada. Yeah, your points uh, there really um, segue well into segment three about misconceptions. So as, you, as you've mentioned uh, throughout this interview, uh, it's, it was a different time, but in terms of what life was like on the national team, what, were, what are some misconceptions or some things that people said to you even back then or now? that uh just weren't true and and maybe some things that people yeah believe that um that happened on the national team the sense of family you have with your teammates when you go through challenging times really creates a bond that you can't break and we really noticed it we ended up having a reunion in 2015 which was 20 years to the day that we had played in the world cup in 1995 and when we all got together, and a lot of us hadn't seen each other in 15 years or so, and it was amazing because it was like we'd never left each other. Like, we were so tight and so close. The thing I would say is, you know, people didn't realize how hard it was for us. Like, it was really tough. It was mentally and emotionally, you know, not positive. We had coaches that were not good to us. I think that's something that a lot of people probably still don't even know how bad it was. It was bad. It was not a positive situation for a lot of us. And, you know, when you have a reunion with, you know, your teammates and you still can't say your coach's name because people were crying, hearing, saying his name, and we had to literally stop saying his name. I think the a lot, big misconception, oh, wow. was, you know, how things were, it was not good. And it's unfortunate because I think they're, you know, that's the one thing I would say that it's made me very aware of is, you know, as an athlete, and it's still prevalent now is how little of a voice you have when you're an athlete. And here you are, you know, basically putting your life and your body on the line to play a sport that you love for a country you love, and you you have absolutely no say or no voice to make any kind of comments. There's no accountability there's no way for players to speak out. If you speak out, you're cut, you know? I think that if there's something I would say, there needs to be some something in place where players start to have a voice and start to be heard because this, I'm sure, is continuing now. I'm, I've heard stories from other sports that it's very similar, but to be in a situation where, you know, you're basically under the, under the thumb of, you know, one or two people and they can be and do whatever they want and you can't say anything because you you basically are at their mercy. I would say that's made me very aware of how important it is for people to have a voice. And it's something that I I I will fight for and I still fight for and I continue to fight for because I think it's really important that as an athlete, you know, you need to be heard. Nobody should be in a situation where it's abusive and nobody should feel like they can't they can't say anything or they can't speak up because they're going to be put on the bench or cut. And, and that happened all the time, you know, and also then as, as a, you know, even when I, when I played for Laurier, I think your role as a captain and as a leader is to make sure you speak up for those that can't speak mm -hmm. up. And sometimes that doesn't happen. So 
I, I just think there needs to be checks and balances in place for athletes at that level and at any level, to be honest with you, where there's, you know, an intermediary where, you know, people are accountable. You can't just throw a person of leadership into a position and let them do whatever they want to do without any sense of accountability or listening to those that are underneath, you know, performing. So there was definitely, if there was a misconception, the misconception was that, you know, things were good. And, and anybody that played at that time will turn around and tell you, no, they weren't. We struggled a lot and we had a lot of difficult things. And it was, if it wasn't for the teammates and for the players and all of us, you know, helping each other out and supporting each other, it would have been really tough, but we had such a strong sense of team and family. We all helped each other out. And for that, I'm grateful. They're still some of my best friends. I still connect with them and talk to them. You know, we, a few of us after that um, reunion in 2015, we started an alumni association. You know, part of the purpose of that alumni association is to help the players on the team have a voice because there's nothing worse than being on a team and literally feeling at, like you're at the mercy of whoever's in charge and you mm-hmm. can't say anything when it's not positive. And, you know, we've seen that in different sports around. You saw that happen here in Guelph at the University of Guelph with the track and field team. And I think, you know, in all sports, there needs to be something put in place where people feel like they have a voice and they can be heard and they, they aren't going to be reprimanded for speaking up and saying, you know, speaking their truth. So <clears throat> that's what I would say. I would say, you know, it was, it was tough. It was challenging. It was uh, a lot of, a lot of, you know, what we did back then was, you know, like I said, we didn't train a lot with the team. So a lot of what we did, we had to do by ourselves. I trained with boys a lot. I trained at the National Training Center with the men's teams, the youth teams. I played in a men's league. I just, anything I could do to Mm -hmm. kind of raise my game and raise my level and raise the speed of play, I did. But it was, you know, a lot of it relied on you. So there was a lot of, you know, you really had to be disciplined and make sure you did your training because, you know, there weren't, uh, we weren't training with the team every day. Like, you know, it's, which I think is, is amazing. It should be like that when you're playing on a national team. Yeah, thank you for sharing that and just being vulnerable in those experiences because that just helps others to potentially share their experiences as well. And I totally understand your point about not having a fear of repercussion. You not just see that in sports, but also potentially in the workplace as well uh, with situations like that. So that's a really good point. My last question here for this segment is related to women's sport. How would you say that's changed and developed since your time on the national team in terms of uh, women's soccer and then women's sports in general in Canada? Well, I mean, I think when we went to the 2015 Women's World Cup, there was there was so much pride for us to sit there and to walk into a stadium and to see the stands full. We played in a game in Edmonton in 95 and we played a game for the World Cup and we played, uh, we were the warm-up match to the men's game. And uh, I remember when we went there, uh, nobody was in the stands. Nobody was watching us except like family and friends. But yeah. even beyond that, they didn't even have us on the ticket. And the reason is because they told us that nobody would come watch the women play. So here you are 20 years later, when we were hurt, we were told nobody would come watch the women play. And now the women sell out every single game they play in. And to see that was amazing and i i i know all, we all talked about it the former players and and myself and we just we were so proud to see that to watch players names on young girls jerseys and to see them in the Role stand models, yeah. uh you know 
I mean, you know, you're talking to a group of us that played in, you know, basically in front of our, our parents <laughs> and that was it. So to see like how much it's changed and how much, uh, how many people know Christine Sinclair's name and, you know, just to see that people are aware of the team and the players and the names. It's, it was, it's amazing to see how much it's grown. Uh, but, you know, it, it takes attention. It takes media attention. It takes visibility and you know it's our responsibility of the the media to make sure that we cover just as many women uh, sports as we do men's sports I still think we have a long way to go I think there's some stats out there where you can see how much you know how many uh, women's sports are covered as opposed to men's and we're not anywhere near it but you can see how when you show people how good it is and um, in in particular with women's soccer when people get to see the women's game People love watching the women's game. So, you know, it's just about giving them that opportunity to be seen and letting people see them. And I think that just, you can't deny how amazing it is. I mean, for me personally, I prefer watching women's soccer to men's soccer. And I know it's not because I, it's not because I'm a, you know, a female soccer player. It's because I actually really enjoy watching the, the skill and the play and maybe they just don't dive as much as the men's game does that is a characteristic of uh of men's soccer unfortunately so but i definitely think you know uh i'm so proud to see how much the sport has grown i'm so proud to see games being sold out i think where we can grow more is there needs to be more females involved in the sport at all levels executives boards coaching coaching yeah I was gonna say coaches for sure I mean I think you know um when you don't see yourself it's interesting because a lot of players I played with finished their sport and didn't get continue in soccer and I think part of that is because when you don't see yourself represented you don't think there's an opportunity for you so you know if you don't see women in executive positions women in leadership positions women in coaching positions you just don't think you have an opportunity you just don't see it so you don't you move on and I think we're really missing an opportunity there when we don't offer and get more women that have played the sport to contribute to the sport once they're done. Um, I mean, nobody knows the sport better than former players. Yeah, I think that's one area where in soccer and probably in all sports, they need to start bringing more women into the game. And I remember for the Women's World Cup in 2015, uh, when that was happening, you know, uh, disappointing that they didn't bring in women's players to be part of that. And I had sent a note asking to volunteer for the games and I just got a thank you back and that was it. And so I think there's just this lack of uh, using former players to be ambassadors and leaders in the sport that they played. I think there's nobody better to, to lead a sport than former players, you know? So I think that that's really important to, to get people to start including former players and, and athletes to become leaders in their sport I think young girls need to see that and I think it's really important because until you see it you don't think you can do it and I think that you know it's the responsibility of each sport governing body to make sure they have avenues and opportunities for females when they are finished their career to have opportunities in their sport but it's just not provided to them and uh, you know it's maybe it's getting a little bit better but it's nowhere near as where it should be I don't think those are uh, good points there Helen and you can definitely see her interest and passion for empowering the next generation so i really do appreciate you sharing that helen and we're gonna move to segment four rapid fire just gonna give you some quick rapid fire questions here and uh we'll see how it goes so the first one is uh name your top three sports teams and athletes of all time 
<laughs> Top three sports teams. I'll say, I'll say athletes. I'm just going to go with athletes. David Beckham, 100%. I remember watching him in the World Cup way back when I was a young, uh, young one and just like loving him for many reasons, obviously, but uh, <laughs> love David Beckham. Okay, from a, a women's soccer perspective, uh, Michelle Akers. If people don't know Michelle Akers, she's probably, to me, the best player to ever play the sport ever, ever, ever bar none. I remember playing against her and, and literally she would change a game by her presence on the field. There was the game you played when Michelle was on the field and the game you played when Michelle was off the field. No, I'm not even kidding. Like when she was on the field, we couldn't even compete when she was off the field. We could, that's how dominant she was. So I would say for sure, Michelle Akers, and then I'm going to pick a Canadian soccer player that I played with. I'd say Jared Donnelly. And um, a lot of people might not know her name, but I wish more people did. She was kind of one of those players that she was one of the smartest players I've ever played with. And she was just this tiny little thing. But man, that girl just, she saw the game so well and was so smart. And I feel like, you know, I feel like in the, in the grand scheme of Canadian soccer, I feel like she hasn't been, well, because we played at a different time, but she actually scored the first goal for Canada ever in it, play ever. So she was the first player, but I would say Jared Donnelly was, you know, I always looked up to her when I came on the team as a rookie, she was somebody that I looked at and I wanted to be like her, but she was just such a smart I loved um, technical, tactical, smart players. Like that's what I really loved. I loved watching them play and I loved seeing how they, they thought because I, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you see Gretzky play and Gretzky can see three mm-hmm. steps ahead. It was kind of like what she was like. She was just a really, really smart player. You know, probably wouldn't be the flashiest player out there, but I would say just was so smart. Everything she did was so good. Like she was just so good. And I wish more people knew her name because I would say, to me, she was one of the best players I've ever played with. That's uh, some high praise there. Question two here. What's your favorite sports memory, both as a fan, so just watching, and then as an athlete? As a fan, only because I was in Europe when this happened, when Greece won the uh, the Euros. <laughs> I was in Germany at the time, and uh, we were I think we were watching the finals on a street. And so just being part of that experience, that atmosphere in Europe while they were going on was a really, really cool experience. And then 2004, right? Yeah. And I'm Greek. So, you know, watching it, being a Greek person, that was a really cool experience to have that happen because that's uh, that was pretty exceptional. As an athlete, I would say when I, I played a game in France and we played in Montpellier and we played before a men's game and the men's game was pre Saint Germain versus Montpellier. And at the time, Paris Saint-Germain was, had some of the best players in the world. So we were the game. We were playing in a final. I can't remember. I think it was against Italy or France in the final of a tournament. And so by the time our game ended, we actually went into, we were tied. We went to extra time. We went into penalty kicks. So by the time our game ended, the stands were full. And I remember we went into PKs and I took, I took a PK. I scored. We ended up losing on PKs, but I remember I scored. But I just remember the crowd going crazy. And I, like I told you, I loved playing in front of loud crowds. You love the hype. (laughs) 
But that was such a cool experience to be sitting there in front of a, a crowd that's, you know, ready to watch a big men's game and us playing before that was a big deal. You know, playing before a pre-Saint-Germain game was a really big deal. So that was a really, really cool experience. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Just to give you two more questions here, both non-sports questions. So we're going to, you know, double out a little bit here. So I'm going to give you one last meal to eat on earth. You got to tell me the appetizer, main course, dessert, and drink that you're having. Okay. Uh, octopus, grilled octopus in Greece with samuzo. So there's my, there's that one. And then meal. Okay. So my meal has to be, um, when I was in Tobago, I ate at this place called Aunt Gemma's Treehouse. And it was this, it was literally a restaurant in a tree. And they only give you three options, chicken, fish, or shrimp. And so we ordered there. I can't remember what we had. We probably had one of each, but they came with bread pudding, which is like a scalp potatoes. And it was literally the best meal I've ever had in my life. So I would say Aunt Gemma's Treehouse, either chicken, fish, or shrimp, all three with bread pudding. And uh, what are you drinking as well? I would say I'm really simple. I like like either a martini or a, a, a white wine spritzer. All right. And uh, last question on the rapid fire here. We're going to ask you a music question. So I'm going to give you the chance to put on a concert in your backyard. You can book any band or artist in the world, either living or dead. And you have to pick three and the order in which they play. I, I mean, I think that's tough. I, you know, I've, I've been listening to a lot of uh, spiritual music lately. So I'm going to pick Hillside Worship just because I've been listening to a lot of them lately. And I do Greek Greek artists, you know, I can't name them off my name. I just know the songs. I do a Greek artist. I do a reggae artist. And I would do a a Hillside Worship, which is a spiritual artist. So Bob Marley, Vespina Vandi from Greek, and then Hillside Worship. How about that? All right. I like the eclectic mix, though. (laughs) So, Helen, once again, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule You've done a lot since then, and I've noted some of that in the bio, but uh, too much to name, just so many accomplishments. So once again, thank you for coming in on the the podcast here. If the audience wants to find out about your accomplishments kind of on the field or some other things that you've done, where can they find you online, social media-wise, that kind of thing? You know, I don't have that. I started a page on Facebook, but there's hardly anything there. But yeah, you know what? They can send me a note. I'm on Facebook. There you go. If uh, I'll leave all that information in the show description. I will also attach the video, as I mentioned previously, uh, her TEDx talk that was in Guelph, actually. So, Helen, once again, thank you for your time. Do appreciate it. Thanks. See you. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Kevin Underhill, Communications Manager for Field Hockey Canada. In this interview, Kevin shares about his interest in the power of storytelling in sport and what life is like working in Canadian amateur sport. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports and see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at the channel one and only sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.